Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Act 3, Southern Death Trip, Episode 1. June 1974, 12 years old, Oak Street House. There's a place for us Somewhere a place for us Arriving in Little Rock, Sue and I were in a daze of change and confusion. But Gorton hit the ground running. He cut off his powerful mane of hair, shaved off his bushy black beard, and started buzzing around town on a little black motorcycle. Even without the non-conforming locks of rebellion, Gorton couldn't hide the fact that he was a freak, and nothing was going to change that. But I was glad for the cleanup. It would help us blend in to what I could tell immediately was a very straight town. We moved into a house on Oak Street in a neighborhood called The Heights. Ours was a yellow, slightly run-down, two-story on a street that was pretty and tidy like in a magazine. A canopy of shade trees provided a cool, calm tranquility, and the small lawns of emerald green were manicured with every blade cut to an equal height. There were no hillbilly shacks with rusted-out pickup trucks in the yard, or hippie compounds, or the sense of freedom you got when you were allowed to be yourself. This was the kind of town that insisted upon compliance, tradition, and in my opinion, death. And for us to live here, Gorton's cleaned-up image would not be enough. The first few weeks of transition were torture. I spent the long, hot summer days walking around looking for a life, just as I had done in Fayetteville. But this was no Fayetteville. You could walk for miles and get absolutely nowhere. I couldn't find the hippies or the buoyant spirit that I was accustomed to, and everyone seemed straight, uninviting, and suspicious, without color or creativity. I got sick of trying to find my happiness, so I decided to sleep it off. I didn't want to kill myself, I just wanted the long, hot, boring days to breeze by without notice. And for that, I would need assistance. I stole some nighttime allergy medicine from the drugstore, and it really did the job. I slept all day and night without hesitation, and my life passed uninterrupted like a bad dream that went on without me. Sue and Gorton's lives must have been much more pleasant now that I had put my adolescence down for a nap. But it unnerved Sue, 
and she jostled me out of a sweaty slumber one day to have a talk. She sat on the bed smoking a cigarette while I tried to prop my body into a sitting position. I kept my bedroom and my mind in a constant state of cave-like darkness, and it was weird to see the sun trying to push through the Venetian blinds, accosting me with its pushy and proud liveliness. Sue didn't condemn me for taking the medication, although I'm not sure if she knew that I had stolen it. She told me she understood, because she too was sad and lonely. It wasn't easy to leave a home and a life that you loved. It was depressing. I asked her why she moved with us, considering that she and Gorton weren't getting along. She said she was older and needed opportunities, and that just being a hippie wasn't enough anymore. As far as I could tell, Gorton didn't notice my elongated nap or the silent treatment that I was giving him. It was his punishment for ruining my life, but it was a ridiculous plan. He was hardly ever home, and when he was, he was stoned and focused on a yellow legal pad. I wanted him to feel my pain, so I turned my silence into dirty looks, the nastiest ones I could summon up. He had to notice that, and I guess he did, because one day in an obvious ploy to turn my frown upside down, he told me that I had two dimples on my face where the angels had kissed me. And because of that, I was special. I ran to the bathroom to find them, and there they were, two little indentations that no one had ever mentioned before. I didn't want to act too proud or conceited, so I walked out of the bathroom like it was nothing. I wanted to believe Gorton, because who wouldn't want to be kissed by the angels? But I wasn't sure. It seemed like make-believe, and I would have to think about it for a while, although it did make me feel a little better about life. Sue moved me out of my cave-like bedroom to a bigger and brighter room at the back of the house, anything to get me out of my funk. It was a sunny room, light and airy, and I think it may have cheered me up. I was too restless to sleep, so I took up residence back in front of the stereo in the same wooden rocking chair that we had in Fayetteville. The curves of the armrest had become an extension of my own hands, and the height was just right for my body. If it were possible to do so, I would have put grooves into the hardwood floor, rocking to Elton John, David Bowie, and Rod Stewart. I fell in love with Elton John in a very serious sort of way. It started out casually with Tumbleweed Connection and Honky Chateau. But the album Madman Across the Water pushed me right over the edge, and I plastered the walls of my bedroom with pictures of him cut out from Cream and Rolling Stone magazines. I kissed those pictures every day, and I referred to him as my future husband, which made people laugh. 
their disbelieving and flippant attitude infuriated me, a person who knew the truth. Gorton tried to convince me one night at dinner that I didn't have a chance with Elton because he was gay. I didn't believe a word of it. Elton John was not gay. He was my future husband, and I loved him. But Gorton was hard-headed, and he wouldn't let up. The volcanic rage and animosity that I had been holding in started to seethe, sputter, and fume, and with eyes squinted in sheer annoyance, I picked up my dinner plate, piled high with mashed potatoes and gravy, and threw it against the wall. The Corningware plate stuck for one minute before it bounced to the floor, and then the spattered potatoes and gravy dribbled down the wall. I stormed out of the room with no intention of cleaning it up or any remembrance of my earlier decision to have a gay boyfriend. The hell of summer was over, and it was time once again to start a new school. I had just turned 13 and was entering the sixth grade with kids who were a year younger. I had been held back in the second grade for the bad behavior of burning the Bible. From day one, I was simultaneously ignored and looked at as if I smelled like a garbage truck barreling by. Occasionally, I would try to make conversation with what were obviously the unpopular kids the blacks, the nerds, and the poor white trash. But a nervous grimace would spread across their face and they would politely tiptoe away. I had an unsavory category of my own, dirty, un-American hippie. And being caught in conversation with the likes of me would surely worsen their tenuous social standing. I may not have had any friends, but I did have Dinah Shore. And coming home to watch her every day was like being greeted at the door by a 1950s mom in a full-length apron, serving up fresh-baked cookies and a cold glass of milk. In my imagination, she would pat my head and coo gently as I spewed on and on about how miserable my life was. Dinah Shore was sincere and polite and never said rude things. She would occasionally stick her foot in her mouth, but it was adorable and it made me love her more. I was anxious for her the day she announced that David Bowie would be her special guest. I loved Bowie almost as much as Elton, but he was too freaky to be on the Dinah Shore show. I thought it might be a flop for both of them. With dread and anticipation, I put my face as close as possible to the black and white television screen. I didn't want to miss a word. My heart was beating fast as the camera panned over to Bowie, who was standing alone on a pedestal, waiting while Dinah introduced him in her low-toned, 
soft and southern accent. She wanted to say oh, five, five years. Five years. And David told me, interestingly enough, just as he walked over to the bandstand, that this is a song that was the direct result of a dream he had, such as the ones we were describing a moment ago. David Bowie. When I heard the first few drum beats to the song Five Years, I was shocked. Why had he chosen this song? There was something creepy and ominous about it, and I didn't think Three O'Clock America could handle it. But Bowie proved to be a true gentleman as he led the viewers safely to the edge of his otherworldliness and then back again to their mundane lives. He sang and swayed with a ghostly demure and was so exquisitely suave and sophisticated that no one could deny him his right to stardom. Dinah loved Bowie, I could tell, and I was happy for the both of them. Oak Street never became the hippie house that Cleveland Street was, but since the upstairs apartment was full of Gorton's friends, we became a small community. We had meals together, entwined ourselves in each other's lives, and put every new tenant through a rigorous household meeting. It was important to weed out the drifters, Jesus freaks, and the severely uptight. Housemates came and went, which was no big deal to me. It was, after all, the story of my life. In Fayetteville, the grown-ups had always been interested in me, even when I was a pain in the ass. Not so much in Little Rock. My explosive temper and nasty tongue was not appealing. I wasn't fun anymore, but neither was anyone else. The culture was changing, and the grown-ups weren't as relaxed as they used to be. They walked around with serious demeanors in vacant shells, which is probably why Robert Plant asked, Does anybody remember last It was gone, and the hippies were dying. They were shooting stars, burning up and burning out. They had become starchy and dull as they shed their rebellious skins and started to conventionalize. They were going straight, but not Gorton. He was back to his old guru ways now that he was the director of the crisis center. His fresh flock of the lost and needy kept him busy, and Sue and I simmered, unattended to, once again on the back burner of his life. Sue moved out of Oak Street House, and her relationship with Gorton became on again, off again. The zippered crotch of the Rolling Stones album Sticky Fingers and a roommate named Joe kept me sane and with company. Joe was a good-humored woman who wore flip-flops, braids in her hair, and glistened with a dark copper-toned tan. She chain-smoked Virginia Slim cigarettes and worked with Gorton at the crisis center. We became close, and I hung out in her bedroom, where she turned me on to Stevie Wonder and Niels Lofgren. Having once been a teacher, 
Joe convinced me that being an asshole wouldn't work for me, but writing might. I took her advice and began with poems, my first entitled, Who Am I? An appropriate question for someone my age. And after a prolific bout of pen to paper, I compiled the poems into a book. I included a poem by Robert Frost, which reflected the somber ambivalence of the book, but I did not reference him as the author. I presented my creation to Gorton and a group of his friends while they sat in a circle in the backyard. They passed it around as if it was the Holy Grail, and each and every one, Gorton in particular, was duly impressed. Their enthusiasm embarrassed me, and I regretted sharing my creation. Who Am I was a big hit, but my stomach turned sick when all the best comments went to the poem by Robert Frost. I immediately felt like an idiot, but I did not speak up. I was waiting for someone to catch on, to recognize that there was no way in hell that I wrote that poem. It had to stand out as different, as genius, and not like the others. But if anyone did notice, they didn't say a word, and now I was going to have to walk around not knowing who knew I was a fraud. I was, for the most part, surviving the sixth grade, the move to Little Rock, and my life in general. As a reward for my perseverance, Sue took me for a long weekend back to Fayetteville. The road trip was miserable, and we spent the whole time pushing each other's buttons and bickering. She complained about my moodiness and bad attitude, and I accused her of slutty behavior, which earned me a slap in the face. When we arrived in Fayetteville, we had had enough of each other, and we went our separate ways. My first stop was to see Billy. He and his family had moved out of the old neighborhood, and when I walked up to his front door, I felt the uncomfortable twinge of the unfamiliar. I walked into their living room, which was dingy, yet surprisingly spacious and uncluttered. The lack of clutter seemed to accentuate the poverty, and the only things that shined brightly were the rifles that stood at attention next to their front door. Everyone was happy to see me, but I could feel the distance. I acted like it was nothing and did my best to jump right back into the old times. But our old times had never been about visiting with each other. We never had to socialize before, and it was obvious. In the old days, we just dwelled in each other's company like family. But today I sat like a stranger on their tattered and spongy couch, drinking fluorescent colored soda out of an enormous plastic cup. I could barely get my hand around the cup, and the soda was so sweet that one sip made me feel sick. The small talk was very small indeed, and I didn't know where to go with it. My poetry? David Bowie? Elton John? It all seemed so wrong sitting next to those big shiny rifles. Billy looked different. His face was serious, stern, and blotchy red with acne. 
He didn't look open to me anymore, and if anything, he seemed bothered. The sweet, tormented kid who used to have a crush on me was gone. He sat on one side of the room, and I sat on the other. It became awkward, and there were long pauses in the conversation. I felt weirdly sophisticated next to them, and I didn't want to be. I wanted to curl back up into this redneck family where I used to feel safe and free. I couldn't understand what had changed. I'd only been gone for a short time, and I was still the same person. What happened to them? I didn't stay long, and our goodbyes were just that. As I shut the gate to their chain-link fence, Billy did something so familiar that for a minute we brushed gently with our past. He straddled the front door, holding both the inside and outside doorknobs. He leaned into the door while alternately watching his feet and me. He looked like he wanted to tell me something important, and for a minute I thought my old friend was going to share a secret. The secret of his misery and the mystery of our divide. But he didn't. I waited quickly, but nothing in words was said. Only in memories, the breaking of hearts, and the soundtrack of our past. The special love I had for you, my baby blue.